Welcome to Happily Ever After is just the beginning. Keeping your relationship not just together, but happy, and we mean truly happy, is part art and part science. You've come to the right place. Here's your host, Leslie Dorries. You know, it's been said that women marry their fathers and men marry their mothers. And to be honest, there is actually some empirical evidence that this actually happens. You know, I have two older sisters, and I would say that we all married some version of our father. And the success of the marriages actually depended a lot on which version we each picked. But You know, I've also worked with several clients who seem to get involved with the same type of person over and over again, only to watch the relationship fail for exactly the same reasons that the other ones did. And, you know, they kind of exemplify the adage of hope over experience. And so a big question to ask, and it's one that I get asked all the time by these clients, is why does this happen? Is it simply luck that some of us had better parents and were set up for better relationships? Or is there some action that can be taken to avoid being doomed to perpetual relationship failure? So to provide insight and some options, I'm joined by Dr. Lisa Firestone. She's a clinical psychologist, an author, and the director of research and education for the Glendon Association. So Dr. Firestone, Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show and talking about this really important and I think a little bit confusing idea. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to be here, and uh, it's a topic that I have a lot of passion about. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is really good, because I, I, we, we all need as much help on this as we can get. And, you know, one of the things that I try really hard when I'm working with my clients to not get too caught up in um, terms and you know, technical things and, you know, unexpl- you know, really, really hard to understand concepts. But there is a concept going on right now. It's, it's all about attachment style. And I think it's really important to talk about this because, you know, people come in and ask about it, and I actually do use it a little bit in my work. So specifically, you know, when, when we talk about attachment style, the role that our attachment style plays in our relationships. So can you kind of give a down and dirty, abridged, relatively easy to understand explanation about what we're talking about, about attachment style and why it's important? Yeah, I I think it actually it turns out it's really important, and it has to do with how we learn to adapt. We were all born into a social environment, our family, our immediate caretakers, and we needed to adapt or to find Mm -hmm. a way to get our basic needs met. And the things that we're looking for is to feel safe, to feel soothed when we're distressed, um, and to feel seen for who we really are. And that's the three S's of uh, attachment. Um, And if you have those three things, you end up feeling secure. So as a baby, uh, you express a need, like you cry because you're hungry. Uh, Mm -hmm. Your mother can attune to you and respond to that need. And then the lesson you learn from that is when I have a need, it's okay to express it. I express it, it gets heard, and it gets responded to. Now, no parent is perfect. In fact, good parents (laughs) get it right about 
30% of the time, so it's not that you have to be perfect. But when yeah, there yeah, are Please say that again. There's no perfect parent. There's no perfect no, there parent. No, perfect parents. <laughs> so no, no parent is going to be perfectly attuned at every moment. But right. when they miss, a good parent repairs. So if mm-hmm. you cry and your mother thinks you're hungry and she tries to give you the bottle and you don't get that you don't take and it. And that's not the problem. Crying, mm-hmm. Then she tries something else. She doesn't just keep putting the bottle back in your mouth. She might change your diaper or whatever it is. There's a, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as mothers in that early period, their brain actually changes and they learn their baby. Happens to dads mm-hmm. too, by the way, if they do childcare. Um, happens to you if you do childcare of somebody else's child. Um, you learn mm-hmm. that child if you do that kind of hands-on care. And if that ha- process happens, um, then you're going to have a secure attachment. And really, it turns out that the best predictor of whether there's going to be a secure attachment between you and a caretaker is whether they have any unresolved trauma and loss from their own past. Because mm. what happens when they do is those moments, in, especially of stress, those things intrude into how they end up parenting. Right. So if you have a parent who is still very caught up in their childhood, meaning when you ask them about it, they talk about it like it's still going on. So it's not only did my mother like my brother better when we were kids, but when she came to visit last week, she went and visited him and his kids, and she didn't even come and see us. And Right. Yeah, it's still happening. <laughs> It is still happening. Right. and when that's Or at least in their head, it's still happening. I mean, Right, exactly. It, right. And, and this is because there's some unresolved trauma. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't have to be big trauma. You know, we often think of trauma as only things like physical abuse, and it's not. It's all kinds of significant mm-hmm. experiences that shifted how you saw the world and yourself. And those can be many things. But anyhow, so when a parent has that kind of unresolved attachment where they – or less than secure attachment. Um, mm-hmm. What that's called in, in an, an adult is a preoccupied attachment. They're still preoccupied <laughs> with whether or not they're getting love and whether or not their needs are getting met. And what that uh-huh. looks like for a baby is it makes them very anxious. It forms an anxious, ambivalent attachment because sometimes that parent is there for them and responds to their needs and meets it, but sometimes they act out of their own needs. So maybe they give you mm-hmm. a hug because they need a hug. Um, and what that does is confuse the baby and what the baby learns to do, the best way to get your needs met by a parent who's kind of intermittently reinforcing you is to cling. Mm-hmm. And so you become right. sort of preoccupied. You uh, will be very upset if they're not around. When they come around, you're very clingy and you don't get soothed very easily. And when you grow up and have romantic you know, relationships, you will tend to exhibit that same pattern of behavior, very preoccupied with whether your partner loves you, whether they don't love you, whether that means something, that they just did this, or whether they said that. Or Yeah, you're in a constant state of agitation and, and overthinking because you, know, right. you, don't, really, you don't really emotions. trust them. Yeah. Right, and yeah. big strong emotions that are then going to get negative reactions from others. In fact, one of the most striking findings from attachment research, which is one of the most well-researched psychological theories in the world and across cultures, is that um, what happens when you have that kind of anxious attachment and you go to school is your teachers don't like you as much as your securely <laughs> attached peers. Your peers don't like you as much. And right. that pattern gets reinforced. So there's behaviors you engage in that elicit responses that then reinforce the pattern. So your pattern at 18 months is very likely to be your parent pattern at 22 years of age. Right, which is... Romantic relationships. 
Right, and and that's really why this is so incredibly important. And I, and I think that people need to understand that this is a natural process that we all go through, mm-hmm. that there's not really – I'm not a big proponent of blame because I don't necessarily find it helpful. And it's not, I mean, yes, these things actually happen, but we kind of have to separate out um, that we all have individual interpretations of what's going on as well. That's true, but you know, the interesting thing about attachment is that you can interview a parent with something called the adult attachment interview, which is developed by a person named Mary Main at the University of California, Berkeley, and you can predict with 86% accuracy what kind of attachment their child's going to have before they're born. Mm-hmm. Wow. A lot of it does maybe, maybe we should be giving that test to everybody. <laughs> we probably should, and then we should work on it because it doesn't mean that mm-hmm. you're fixed there. The other right. kind of insecure attachment um, that people can develop is where you have a need that you express as a baby and it doesn't really get attuned to or necessarily responded to. But your basic Uh needs are kind of met. And what you learn after a year or so of doing this, the first year of your life, is you get pretty frustrated and you feel um, like expressing needs hurts and leads to a lot Uh of pain because they don't get responded to in a sensitive way. And so what Uh you do is you disconnect from your own needs and you develop a stance of taking care of yourself. I'm not going to need, you know, if the baby could speak at one, they would say, you know, I'm not going to rely on you who are too, you know, who don't respond to my needs. In fact, the way you don't respond to my needs causes me so much pain that it makes me feel shame because I can't afford to see you as inadequate. So I turn to shame. So I turn to shame. Must be something wrong with me. And and I see that all the time because, you know, it's what I tell people. As, as babies, we cannot imagine that I call them the giants in our lives mm-hmm. don't know what they're doing. So that if something is off, it's got to be about me. It can't possibly right. be about, you know, my caretakers because that's too scary and too... You know, because without them, we die. So it, we just we just can't even go there as as babies. Right, right. And and we maintain the power, if you will, by feeling like it's something about us. If I just act better, then I'll be loved. <laughs> but what mm-hmm. happens for these? What, what's called an avoidant attachment for a baby is that they learn to act like they don't care. So you see these kids, and they can be in a situation with their parents, where the parents leave the room and come back, leave the room and come back again, and they act like they don't care the whole time they're gone. They don't go to them mm-hmm. for comfort when they come back. But if you put a heart rate monitor on those kids, they're anxious the whole time their parent is gone and they feel much better when they're there. But you but they just don't them, but they just won't show it from on the outside. Right, because because that's the best adaptation to these parents who have not been meeting your needs. It's sort of an emotional desert, if you will. Right. And so what it looks like when you're an adult is you have this feeling of, I can take care of myself, I don't need other people. And Mm -hmm. you are very removed from your feelings. So often, um, so what you'll do is when other people say that they need you or they want something from you, you'll feel like, oh, they're so needy. And denigrate (laughs) them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the same needs that you can't express. Um, and often these are the individuals who are drawn to those people who have the anxious attachment. So what you get mm-hmm. is somebody with an anxious attachment who's pursuing, 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 and somebody and with somebody an avoidant with a- attachment who's avoiding, avoiding, and avoiding. Right. And they well, both thank seem you. adaptive to each other because the person's moving towards you because the other person's kind of running away. The person who's running away is, I have to run away because they keep coming toward me. Right. You know what I mean? And that becomes a very stuck and difficult pattern to break. 
Well, and this and this leads me to the next thing. But I think this leads right into what you were talking about in this recent article that you wrote called "Are You Creating Your Own Nightmare in Your Relationship?" Which I love the title. The title was like, "What? I got to read this." Um, and and you talk about the ways that we replay these relationship dynamics. And the first one that you talk about, I think, goes straight to what you were just mentioning, is about selection. And I, what I what I gather from you is like that's about who we choose to be involved with. Like you're you're describing this dynamic of the clingy person going after the person who doesn't you know who keeps pulling away. Right, right. And you know the problem is because if you ask people what they're looking for in a partner, they tell you a mm-hmm. lot of wonderful traits, right? <laughs> that we probably all agree on. <laughs> yes. Pretty great. But if you look at their relationship pattern and who they've been choosing. And often, like you said at the very beginning, there's some elements that remind us of mom or dad in that person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in fact, I, I have a whole uh, group of brothers that I've seen. This is a family of nine. Um, wow. And they all choose mom as their partner. And then they, you know, mm-hmm. are demo, you know are at war with her. But anyhow, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. go well um, but in their relationships. But uh, so what happens is that... You know, on an unconscious level, below our awareness, we're very drawn and feel a lot of chemistry with those people who fit with our defenses, where our adaptation, so for the anxious person, the seeking, 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 um, mm-hmm. is rewarded and by, you know, or it may, seems adaptive, and the same for the person who's avoidant. They're looking for somebody uh, unconsciously who's going to go after them because then they can avoid, avoid, avoid. And what that does is it just reinforces the old pattern. It doesn't go well. There's a lot of conflict, but they're very drawn to one another at the beginning. You know, so yeah, I, that that's that's the selection process. So look at your pattern, and maybe date outside your comfort zone. Like consider people <laughs> who might not be uh, that thrilling and exciting, but are really nice to you. Um, well, that's yeah. I mean, I see that all the time, and and you know that, and and I know that. There's a stereotype, and I, it's probably not as widespread, but, you know, it's it's the nice guys going, why are all these girls going after, you know, the bad boys? And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, <laughs> let's, right. let's go back. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we people will say, this is what I want, and then you look at who they're with, and it's like, but, but. That's not what's happening here. And I think that's where, you know, sometimes as friends, people go, oh, this guy's so great. And the, the friends are looking at him going, no, maybe not. Or, you know, what are you doing with that, with that woman who seems to be like this? And, you know, they, they look at us a little bit like we're crazy because we're saying one thing and doing something else. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is the, um, you know, a very important um you know, thing is to pay attention to what your friends say, right. <laughs> people who know you. <laughs> right. You know, and and I I I think that's really important because sometimes we need to choose somebody who's not in our comfort zone, who's different, but who can really um, be a good partner for us. And so um, that's the first thing about selection is look at your pattern. So mm-hmm. I think about a young woman that I was working with who. Uh, was sure that nobody was going to ever have the feeling of really loving her or choosing her. And she briefly got into a relationship with somebody who wasn't um, really available. And, you know, that kind of reinforced that idea. And then there was this guy who really kept pursuing her. 
you know, right. the nice guy, if you will. Uh-huh. He really was. I mean, yeah. And her friends yeah. and family were like, this guy's really nice. You it's like, yeah, what, you pay attention and, to this guy over here. Yeah. And, and, and she kept saying, but I don't have those romantic feelings toward him, even though he's very attractive and uh, very warm mm-hmm. to me, and we share a million activities, and we're good friends. I'm like, okay, you need to go out with him anyways. Um, and mm-hmm. he did. And it really made all the difference. I mean, because once they started a romantic relationship, she's just been thrilled and happy and blossoming. I mean, it's so amazing to see. And it, you know, there's two ways to kind of repair our attachment system. One is to get into a relationship with somebody who has healthier attachment than we do and stay uh-huh. for a long time <laughs> mm-hmm. and not drive them away. When we do that, <laughs> we actually can get earned secure attachment through a reparative emotional experience. Another way we can do it is we can go to psychotherapy with a good therapist and probably stay for quite a while. And the research is really pretty clear that if you have secure attachment yourself as a therapist, you're going to have much better outcomes with your clients. So mm-hmm. for therapists who have any unresolved attachment issues, I think this is really important. But I think for everybody who does, the other thing that we know is it turns out it's not how bad your childhood was that predicts how you're going to be as a parent or as a partner. It's whether you felt the full pain of it and made sense of it. And I was really Which struck. is really hard for a lot of people because... It is. Going there, it's like, I, you know, either either they don't want to revisit it or what I see a lot of times is they they feel disloyal to a parent if they actually talk about what they experienced, which, you know, and again, it's removing that blame. It isn't about necessarily blaming your parent. It's about looking at what happened and finding a way to deal with it in a, in a healthier way. Right, and and it, it it isn't about blaming your parent, but it is about seeing what's happened, and you yes. have to see them clearly. And in that, you're going to feel guilty because you're going to break, and you're also going to feel scared just because you're breaking a bond with them or an mm-hmm. imaginary connection with them. And in order to really keep that imaginary connection alive, you have to feel like you know you're this, you have to maintain that old identity that you had growing up, which may not be who you really are. It's probably, at least to some degree, you with you being bent out of shape quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out it's actually really um, important to be willing to see it and feel about what happened to you. Now, it's not blaming in the sense of, you know, trying to work it out with them still, which is what a lot of people want to go do. Oh, I know. A lot of people but, try to do, yes. You know, it's it's like, like that's not the, that's not the course. The way mm-hmm. that I want to be loved, this is all going to work out. Um, mm-hmm. It's more letting go of and saying goodbye to the fact that you didn't have that when you needed it so badly and dealing with what, you know, what what, what that has left in terms of how you feel about yourself. So, um, you know, it's not a matter, um, I, I guess, of, you know, uh, you know, again, some resolution with them, but making sense out of it for yourself and letting go of hoping that the past will be different. <laughs> you know, which, yeah, I'm, you I'm know. still looking. I'm still looking for that magic wand myself, either that or the time machine. Um, right. This is happily ever after. Is just the beginning on WebTalkRadio.net. I'm Leslie Dorries, and I'm talking today with clinical psychologist and author Dr. Lisa Firestone about how our pasts can impact 
the health and happiness of our current and future relationships. And just to let you know, she's got um, a webinar coming up in February called How Emotions Guide Your Life, which I think is great. And she also has um, some e-courses that one is called The Power of Emotions and then the, and another one called Creating Your Ideal Relationship. So that's an option for people. But, you know, again, if you also find yourself repeating these unproductive patterns in your marriage and you want to do something about it, I invite you to also get in touch with me. You, know, you can send me an email or give me a call and take advantage of my complimentary no-obligation Create Your Happily Ever After strategy session where we actually do take a look at some of the attachment stuff that we, you know, that, by the way, is universal. We all are dealing with it, so there's nothing weird about it. But um, I do want to get back to this article about whether or not you're creating your own nightmare relationships. And you talk about another thing that happens, which is distortion. And, you know, why do we do this? And more importantly, how do we stop doing it? Right, and distortion is that we start to, see, you know, we start off with a partner often because we're really drawn to them. That's how we get uh-huh. into it in the first place. But what happens is as that goes along, we start to see them more in terms of people from our past than how they really are. And we start to, so when they say something to us that's we feel is critical or whatever, we feel like they're, you know, they think we're stupid just like our mom did. Or we think that, you know, or they think that we um, are not pretty enough just like we felt in our family. Um, or uh-huh. they think that we're uh, annoying and a bother just like we felt in our family. So we start to project onto them, see them more in terms of people from our past, and um, we really don't see them anymore, the original person that we may have had actually a lot of uh, love and closeness with at one point. Um, uh-huh. That kind of gets lost in the process. And... Um, you know, it's really, it's not something we can't get back or we can't start to realize, but it's really helpful to start to recognize that, you know, this is a new person and um, what they're, you know, we need to really look at it uh, fresh and we need to really listen too when we, you know, when we think or assume that they feel a certain way about us, it's important to check that out because it might not be true. And I know well, that isn't true. Well, and that's... And part of that is then also believing them when they say this, because I see this all the time. Well, so, you know, my partner's mad at me. And the partner's like, no, I'm not. Right. <laughs> you know, or, or the partner. Exactly. And, like, and, 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 and then you're telling the other person, which I find to be one of the most disrespectful things we can do, how they feel. And then we kind of uh-huh. keep at them about, yes, you are mad at me. And then, and then of course, they do get mad. And then it's like, see, uh-huh. I knew all the time you were mad at me. And, right. you know, I talk about, you know, it, it's like looking at somebody through, you know, through a lens. You know, it's like uh-huh. anybody who wears glasses knows that, oh, if I take my glasses off, I can't see clearly, but if I put them on, you know, but everybody's prescription mm-hmm. is a little bit different. So I'm looking at you through the lens that was created when I was a child. Right. And, and again, and especially for the negative things or the less than positive things that are happening, those are um, – we're very sensitive to those things so that when we see them in the relationship, they they take on a greater meaning than 
is truly meant, <laughs> right? Right, absolutely, and we're much more reactive. And it's like you said, it's not really fair to our partner in the current day. Um, you know, there's almost nothing they can do to dissuade us that they're not having that old reaction to us. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and you know, like you said, it's very frustrating that the partner is going, "Wait, but I don't didn't say that, <laughs> right?" Didn't right. That way. Um, I think we really do need to listen. And we need to pay attention. Um, and we need to be aware that sometimes, for instance, we may have a tone or something that's coming across that's mm-hmm. not what we, because we, we're very unaware of those things in ourselves and very aware of them in others. Um, so, you know, it's important to know that we might, you know, also have missed the mark a little bit in terms of how we see it. But it's also, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so that distortion is something to really challenge. And again, this is based on our attachment system because what we learned in our earliest relationships was how relationships go. And what we develop is something that uh, they call in the field uh, internal working models. Or really, if you want to make it simple, just ideas about how relationships go. And those ideas really guide the filter through which we see our partners, we see Mm -hmm. their interactions with us. And it's important to understand what our filter is. So if our filter is that we're the Cinderella in the family, or if our filter is that uh, you know, uh, I have to be the loudest one to get my needs met, or whatever it might be, those filters then affect our partner. And I was so struck that Dan Siegel had written about how to repair your attachment system uh, in a few places. One is an old book that he had written on parenting, uh, Parenting uh-huh. from the Inside Out, still an incredibly good book for parents. Um, and he wrote about it in his book on the teenage brain, Brainstorm, which is for both teenagers and their parents or anybody who has to deal with somebody between 12 and 22. <laughs> um, um, and Or who is between 12 and 22. Yes. And, um, you know, it's very helpful for understanding what's really happening as your brain develops during those years because, you know, teenagers sometimes act like they're out of their mind and partly it's because they are. Their brains are reorganizing. Well, yeah, um, I mean, their brains you know, really are moving, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There are real things happening. It's not just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bad behavior or something like that. <laughs> right. Or, uh, you know, not, you know, why can't you just think like an adult? Well, you can't. And, you know, because they can't. Me, no, because they literally can't. And, we, you know, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, we say that, but then we expect teenagers to make, you know, major life decisions um, at oh. an age when they're probably not. Uh, at their most capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, in the best way possible, with the most reflective function, I guess, which is right. what we kind of think of as, as the ideal. So um, so I got interested and asked Dan to teach with me an e-course on how to do that, how to repair your attachment system. So if you grew up with less than ideal uh, parenting and you developed either an anxious attachment or an avoidant attachment that we talked about or uh, most uh, distressing actually is when there is no organized strategy to get your needs met and that's a fourth type of attachment which is called disorganized um, which is terribly disruptive yeah which is terribly disruptive and that happened if you had parents that were either frightening so when you went to them for comfort and safety you actually got more frightened um, or Uh it was very confusing because they were the source of that fright Um, Uh or when you went to them for safety they got afraid and this is I think where the unresolved trauma partly comes in because when you have unresolved trauma, when a child comes to you for safety, it may trigger all your unresolved uh, own trauma. 
and so you get very emotionally and reactive in ways that are probably not the best reaction for your child, but it's because you have unresolved trauma that's getting triggered. And parents understanding their triggers is really important mm-hmm. in terms of being good parents. It's, again, all parents are going to get triggered if you have children who are going to get triggered. Uh, yes. There is no way to avoid this, this issue like, and just think, well, I'm going to be the perfect parent who never has this experience. You are. Mm-hmm. It will happen. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that you, you know, but you can, the more you can address those triggers, resolve them, understand them, understand the patterns of kinds of things that get you upset with mm-hmm. your child, and understand where their sources are really in your own childhood, you can do a much better job with your kids. Um, and uh, you can spare them some of, you know, the things that you may have experienced. But anyhow, once but I, you can re- resolve that. But the thing I was after was, okay, so how can we help people, those people we work with, um, or just people in general who want to have better relationships repair their attachment system? And so we developed an actual online course to do that. And it, partly we did it through helping walk people through some of the exercises that you do uh, mm-hmm. that are involved in the adult attachment interview, that measure that I mentioned. So uh. we asked people to reflect on their childhood in a way that's different than we typically do. Because we all have the, quote, story of our childhood. Good, bad, sure. or different, we have a story sure. that uh, we are used to telling that's about that subject. And um, when we tell that story, that doesn't stir up very much for us. But really getting to looking at our story maybe from different angles and in different surprising ways, we start to realize the parts that aren't really fully resolved for us. And when we do well, that, and I've we then can address them and resolve them because if feeling the full pain of it and making sense of it is the, what you need to do, you need to get to feeling it and to knowing what it is you're feeling about. Well, and I think you're talking about something that, that I find that if people can do this, it's a little bit less scary, and that's bringing a sense of curiosity to it, not because it is a little scary and a, little, and a lot uncomfortable to, to go to these places, but if we can kind of just be more curious about it, I think that's a really positive approach to it. And I want to talk about the final dynamic you talk about, which is provocation. And, mm-hmm. you know, this, this behavior seems particularly unhelpful. So could you define it and then also give us some suggestions on how to become aware what, that it's happening? Yeah. So we can actually start to do things that provoke our partner to treat us in a way that's familiar, albeit more negative. Um, mm-hmm. And what we do is we do things that get, elicit them to uh, disregard us or get angry at us or whatever in the way that we kind are, of confirm again, kind of confirm what we've are what, what we expect from them. Right, and actually what we often get them to do is to actually say to us the critical things we think about ourselves, um, mm-hmm. so, you know, um, and then we fight it out with them, which feels more, um, well, it's unpleasant, it's, it feels like a battle that feels like, okay, I understand this, I'm fighting this outside enemy, and it's often when people get rid of or you know, break up with partners, they are all of a sudden like, oh, wait a minute, I still feel this way. What happened? <laughs> you know, I thought it was all about this person seeing me this way, and why do I mm-hmm. still have these same demons? And partly you still have those same demons because it isn't really about your partner. Um, you know, it, it's not that your partner is perfect, but you're big emotional reactions, and any really big emotional reactions as an adult, often are really not about the other person. They're about something uh, yeah, issue from our own childhood. 
But that's really hard because one of the things that, you know, I, I always find, especially when I'm working with couples, is you've got a built-in scapegoat. If you Because people come in, it's like, well, if my partner would just, I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, it's uh-huh. like, fix my partner. Well, your partner's not broken, but because it's a lot harder to look in the mirror at what's going on inside of me than to just say, well, this person did this and, you know, it, it's the whole you made me mad or, or you made me do this. And I, you know, I'll uh-huh. tell people, I said, nope. I said, unless somebody's got a gun to your head, they can't make you do anything. And even then they can't make you do it. So, right. but it's and, really and they, can, and they can't hard. make you feel certain things either. Your feelings well, are actually physiological reactions going on inside of you. And that's a real right. idea for people because, you know, they would love to think that everything they feel is about something out here. But the reality is a lot of it is inside of us. And, you know, if you can start to get that idea, you know, it, it, you do lose your scapegoat, but you get a lot of power because well, that's you it. can start to shift what's going on inside of you. And that means that you get to choose to a good deal what, where, your, where your feelings are going to be in your experiences. And, you know, that's actually a pretty wonderful thing if you think about it a bit because then you're going to have much more choice in your life. You have much more control. Um, and you can start to do things to increase your feelings depending on where, which you know, quadrant of the feeling, you know, map you want to be in. Do you want to be in lots of emotional distress or would you rather be mm-hmm. calm or would you rather, uh, you know, be, uh, you know, really activated so you can get something done or whatever it might be? Um, or do you want to chill out, you know, and you get some power over that based on how you decide to behave, which... You know, I, people should be thrilled about, but they're not always, like you said, well, because they have well, their because scapegoat of their partner, which is so easy. Well, I mean, and, and part of that is, and to me, I, I see both sides of the coin, that, yeah, it's incredibly empowering that I get to choose, but then that's also a lot of responsibility, that I get to choose. This. I, well, I'd rather just let it be that person's responsibility or fault that I'm upset, as opposed to taking a step back, taking a deep breath and going, okay, what was that about? <laughs> right, right. And and yet, you know, I, I do think it does, you know, once people do start to, um, you know, to consider this, they start to feel a lot better. Um, and, um, and, you know, it also, you know, makes sense of the problem of why don't I feel better when I get rid of this partner, which, mm-hmm. you know, people will do. Yeah. They'll break up over these things, thinking that, you know, it's my partner who thinks all these terrible things. And then they feel devastated when those feelings don't go away when their partner does. So, I, you know, that's the part that where, you know, I think that it really is important to look at, okay, so what is our part of this dynamic? And, you know, we always, there's right. always two sides to every coin. There's always two parts. Sure any dynamic and the part you have control over is the part you bring to the table you have very little control over the part your partner brings to the table you know um, that you can't really uh, do too much about except that by shifting your behavior you're very likely to shift theirs which um, is and which is again something that people don't don't understand is that when you start doing something different your partner it's going to be really hard for your partner to keep doing the same thing because that's because it won't make any sense right but then and, I, and I think about a, a couple that I knew where that you know he would um, 
her partner would kind of be the boss in the relationship or, you know, mm-hmm. was always the one who sort of, you know, seemed like he had all the power. And, um, and you know, when she all of a sudden didn't see him as a parent anymore, so one day he started even, like, you know, shaking his finger at her and telling her, you know, you <laughs> right. will not do whatever anymore, she just laughed. Mm-hmm. Right. And believe me, he had to figure out something else to do, you know. Um, so the best way to shift your partner is to look at what they do that you like least and what mm-hmm. do you do just before that. That's a good suggestion, right. Yeah. You know, what's your part of dynamic? So you hate every time that your partner tells you how you can fix something. And this is a typical one between men and women where women will mm-hmm. complain about what bothers them and the men in their life will go, oh, here, let me fix it. Exactly, because that's what they're wired to do, but okay. Yeah, and there's a really cute video on YouTube about this. It's not about the nail. It's a woman actually with a nail Uh, in her head. Mm -hmm. And the way she's right. trying to tell her it's about the nail, and she keeps saying, can't you just listen to me? Um, and, <laughs> you know, but if you just want to be listened to, it's important to say to your partner, you know, I want to vent about this, but I don't really want any advice. Uh-huh. And my guess is if you do that, they're going to go, oh, okay, and not give you very much advice. Um, mm-hmm. But you have to really set that limit, and you have to know what it is you're asking for when you mm-hmm. uh, launch into your complaints uh, about your day or whatever. Um, and, you know, that's one of the very typical dynamics I think people can break. But, you know, mm-hmm. the thing is to really, when you take back responsibility for your reaction, so instead of saying, you made me feel blah, 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 uh-huh. like your partner usually shuts down, doesn't hear you. Um, or they argue it, with you. Or they argue with you. They're angry back already. They're ready with their defense, mm-hmm. you know, and they mm-hmm. um, they usually have a pretty well-established defense to that line. Um, sure. And, you know, and... Um, you know, all you get into is the the classic argument that you get into, whatever that is. You replay your your favorite mm-hmm. argument, um, and um, a much probably more adaptive or healthy approach is to say, you know, when you do that, it, I, you know, the feeling that went on inside of me is this, and mm-hmm. then really kind of reflect on that. What is the want that you have at that time? What is the mm-hmm. underlying painful feeling you have? What is the want? And can you express that want not only as a general thing like, you know, I felt criticized and I want you to love me all the time no matter what I do, which might be right. what you want, you know, and that's a perfectly okay well, thing Well, it's, un- it's the unconditional love that we expect when we're babies that we still right. just keep. And that we really want you know. still. Yeah, we want, can, sure. And you can express that want, but then what's a very specific thing your partner can do that's going to make mm-hmm. you feel better? So if you're angry because they're late and that when they're late, that makes you feel like they don't care, um, you know, you can say, uh, I want you to care enough about me not to be late. But if you are going to be late, and here's a specific, could you please give me a call? Right. And then you give your partner something that is bite-sized they can do. So which never is an imp- late, which they is probably can't do. Uh, but, well, because first but, off, I'm not sure that's even feasible. But yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it is. It's no, it, it, them. Is, it is infeasible. And if you live someplace like Los Angeles, it's never feasible. But no, <laughs> yes, no it's never traffic. feasible. But um, but you know, but but you know, what is the thing that they actually specifically could do that would make you feel better? And mm-hmm. when you give them a specific, you know, your partner is much more likely to go, Oh yeah, I could do that. And mm-hmm. they're also not going to feel overwhelmed. Like, okay, love you all the time. What does that even mean? How could I possibly do that? Or or, you know, never well, Or they say, I do. You know, they actually do love you all the right. time. So th- that really leaves them confused. It's like, but may- they might not be showing it in a way 
that registers with you, which again, that's that, that's a topic for a for another day. For another day, the, which is paying attention to how your partner experiences love, which might be really right. different than how you experience love. And, and you usually that, is. It usually is. And, and, you know, what people mistakenly do, and, and even people in our field, right, is they over and over again give their partner love in the way they feel love, which sure. uh, they just don't understand why it's not reaching them. Exactly. <laughs> um, because it would so, work for me. <laughs> um, well, I mean... But, it, and this has been just, I mean, we could continue to talk about this for quite a while because, sure. you know, I, I think this is all in information that people really need. And we all think we're so, you know, that, that we're the only ones going through this. And this is one of the things I want to let people know. It's like we all go through this. If you're experiencing these things, you are not abnormal in any way, shape, manner, or form. Um, no. But – but um, can you tell people where they can access these courses, where they can find out more about healing their own wounds, um, healing their own trauma? And, and again, you know, trauma has a m- multiple meanings. But so people go, well, I was, I never experienced trauma. It's like actually, we have all experienced trauma, whether it's major trauma or minor trauma. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's one of yeah. the funniest things that we included actually in our course was. Dan Siegel talking about when he was taking um, a training in a certain kind of therapy that addresses trauma, and they said, okay, now role play the therapy with each other by coming up with a trauma that you've experienced. And he basically said, I haven't had any. And yeah. he said, no, no, come on, think of yeah, something. You have, yeah. And he thought of something that just popped into his mind, which was when his dog died when he was young, and that has led to a huge amount of insight about what formed his character. And he talks about it, <laughs> right. and he talks about it in our e-course in a way where you get to see whether you judge whether it's really resolved or not even to this day so it's Mm -hmm. kind of an interesting thing that we all have more trauma in that more uh small t trauma if you Mm -hmm. will yes then we we Mm -hmm. care to think um so uh where they can access this or any of these materials how to create your ideal relationship or resolve unresolved trauma is uh on our website it's called psychalive.org we also just have a lot of good uh, free psychological information for the general public on how to be alive to yourself, alive to your relationships, and alive to uh, as a parent. Um, and we have webinars that we do that are for the general public and also for professionals. Um, mm-hmm. And we have these e-courses that people can take that help walk you through the process. If you had some form of insecure attachment, whether that was more anxious or uh, whether that was more avoidant, you know, how can you resolve that so that you can be the best partner uh, you can be and so that maybe you don't have to keep making bad choices for yourself or doing things like distorting and provoking to get those old reactions that you can mm-hmm. actually have the relationship you want to have and just one hopeful thing I, I want to end with to say to people and, um, is that you know your, identi- your identity is incredibly flexible and people tend to define themselves I'm this way I can only do this or I can't do that mm-hmm. And the reality is that your identity is made up of your behavior. And if you decide to have different behavior, you can change your identity overnight. If you feel like, you know, you're not a very generous person, just go out and be giving, and you can be a generous person if that's what you want. You have a, uh-huh. real lot, of, a lot of choice to change your behavior by your actions. And a lot of times even the definitions we have about ourselves are just not accurate. You know, sometimes our friends know us better than we know ourselves, and they certainly often treat us better than we treat ourselves. Well, that's um, definitely true. 
important to look at the fact that we may not have very accurate, accurate pictures of ourselves and we um, may not treat ourselves in ways that are very kind. And so be willing to question those is really important. Absolutely. So I just want to tell people, you know, it isn't just your imagination that you seem to have the same intimate relationships over and over again. And as we've talked about today, the good news is that you don't have to continue this pattern. Becoming aware of your behaviors and your attachment style and these, all these other things we've been talking about today, and then doing exactly what Dr. Firestone just said – taking active steps to do things differently, that's the path to both better relationships and a better life. And we each have the power to create the relationships that we want. So if yours isn't going the way you want, the answer might not be to end it and then repeat it with somebody else, but to actually change it. So I encourage you to keep listening to the show for more wonderful guests like today. And until next week, stay loving.